Welcome to Good Sense, a political education podcast. Hi, I'm Vivek Sony. And I'm Rowan Fortune with the Good Sense podcast. We'll be addressing different political subjects such as ecology and economics from a broad Marxist perspective and based around reading. We don't assume prior knowledge, so please enjoy. Leviathan was first referenced in the Hebrew Bible in the book of Job, Isaiah, Amos and the Psalms. They refer to the sea serpent or dragon. Contemporaneously, Leviathan has come to refer to a sea monster of irresistible power. The Leviathan conjured by Jeff Mann and Joel Rainwright is that of Thomas Hobbes' greatest work, Leviathan or the Matter, Form and Power of a Commonwealth Ecclesiastical and Civil, one of the first works on the social contract and structure of society. But where the original invocation of Leviathan is that of the embodiment of nature's ferocity, Hobbes' Leviathan is actually an escape from nature, a mechanical anti-monster, as Carl Schmitt put it. Put simply, Hobbes' Leviathan is a treatise on the necessity of absolute sovereignty, of state power. The context is important. Hobbes was writing during the English Civil War, and it was only through a strong, stable and cohesive state that he imagined a future civil war could be avoided. In this sense, Leviathan is an apt title. The word derives from the root lava, meaning to join. It was only through this joining, the centralization of power, that Hobbes could envision a future in which peace would last. In Jeff Mann and Joel Rainwright's Climate Leviathan, the authors explore four social formations for counteracting climate change. Leviathan, Behemoth, Mao, and X. The four form a two-by-two contingency table along the axes of sovereign, anti-sovereign, and capitalist, anti-capitalist. Like Hobbes stabilising sovereign, there is the capitalist Leviathan, the path we look most likely to head towards, with solutions such as the Green New Deal and geoengineering slowly gaining traction. The anti-sovereign, capitalist framework is that of Behemoth, another invocation from the Book of Job. Where Leviathan seems inevitable when this book was written, The anti-liberal, anti-state far-right have made considerable political gains in the years since, and it was this tendency the authors label behemoth, a tendency whose political capital is sourced from stoking the ongoing culture war and seizing the opportunities this creates. Climate Mao mirrors Leviathan in its advocacy of a sovereign power through rejecting the capitalist system. Named after the Chinese revolutionary, Climate Mao reflects the need for a rapid, revolutionary, state-led transformation of society. Finally, there is Climate X, the least tangible of the formations. Climate X represents the rejection of both state and capitalist transformations. It is the harnessing of grassroots, worker-led movements. The central thesis of the book is that the future of the world will be defined by these formations and the conflicts between them. So we're going to discuss each in turn and try to tease out both the viability of these formations and what the consequences may prove to be. So would you like to start on Leviathan itself, which I think makes sense. It's the first formation discussed in the book, and it also follows quite neatly from our last discussion on the Green New Deal uh, through Naomi Klein and and Pettifor. 
Yeah, so it does lead on nicely from our last episode uh, where we talked about uh, Klein and Pettifor's manifestos for a Green New Deal, which were very policy-focused. Um, in Climate Leviathan, uh, Jeff Mann and Joel Wainwright focus more on the social formation and not only its likelihood, but also uh, what it means in a more international concept rather than just at the level of the state. Ultimately, what Climate Leviathan would be would be a Green New Deal enacted at an international scale. So mm. there's inherent obstacles to to something like this, to something like Keynesianism in one country, and part of that is things like uh, internal hostility. Um, we saw that with Corbynism, increasing demand by um, providing jobs, providing uh, basic infrastructure uh, was was there was there was a great deal of hostility both from the market and the media to this. And then once, but once you take that to the global scale, you have a much wider array of obstacles. One of those uh, which the um, both authors talk about is the necessity of sophisticated and liquid global markets in a series of novel eco-friendly instruments. What they mean by that is that you're opening up new markets. And whilst this is uh, beneficial to capitalism as a system, uh, to actually enact it, you need to ultimately redefine entire global supply chains. And this is this is mm. this is to enact this in a coordinated manner would require some sort of sovereign. So some sort of sovereign who's able to coordinate this. There's a political problem, as you described, and there's an economic problem, and in a way, a, a much less extreme sense than what we're talking about through something like a global Green New Deal. You can see that in the international response to 2008. So when Gordon Brown helped lead the way on the response of different capitalist governments to that crisis, he could only really do that by achieving a semi-state of consensus through different national governments. This is written into how Keynesianism itself operates, so that it's very easy for a free rider state, for example, to wreck Keynesian policies on an international level. And it was really only with governments like David Cameron's that that fell apart, uh, as it was no longer felt to be necessary after the um, after the wind-up of the crisis, at least perceived wind-up. And also as the increasing hostility between different factions of global capital came to a head. So yeah, there's a, there's a tremendous problem uh, of Keynesianism in one country, which I think most of these advocates of Green New Deal's do acknowledge they they largely see this in a global framework, um, and that's written into the project. That kind of notion, the actual tackling of the political side of it, though, how an international sovereign would come about, whether or not something that literal would even be necessary, comes up considerably less, because obviously the will to accomplish something like that and the global realignment necessary for for such a project is almost unthinkable actually i would say it, it, it in the way that keynesians tend to especially radical keynesians tend to talk about keynesianism as if it's a form of post-capitalism you can certainly see how what they're talking about in that sense is is system altering to an extent that it would certainly feel like a completely different set of of um, 
of, of social relations, even if it was still based on the same productive forces. And so what are those risks if a single country tries to enact a Green New Deal? An obvious one we think of is capital flight. Uh, so of capital flight, this is the disciplining effect of global capitalism, where if a single country steps out of line, then capital can just literally move around because of the globalized market. And that uh, that, that that has a disciplining effect on uh, an individual country that wants to go it alone. And we saw in the 1970s that international capital had a both a willingness and a tremendous capacity to discipline national governments in that way. This is, again, why a, an international sovereign who could just prevent capital from behaving in that way would be foundationally necessary to such a project. And it's very hard to see where the forces for that would emerge. Both um, Jeff Mann and Joel Rainwright talk uh, about the um, the implications of various structural uh, paradoxes in capital right now, uh, the, the contradictions that really necessitate a climate leviathan, uh, a, a, a solution at this level. Um, but the social forces, the balance of powers, as Marxists would refer to, really doesn't seem to be there in, in the, so far as even progressive capital like Biden remains highly nationalistic in its focus, um, still signed up, for example, to great power competition. Um, and in fact, in that way, with some remarkable continuities uh, to the Trump regime. You are constrained by electability at home and you are constrained by capital flight to abroad. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. Um, it's it's a it's a, a pincer that's that's really difficult to envisage out a, a way out of, and it's also just hard to see who is enacting this project that has a shot at power. We've seen movements come and go now that really had this at their heart, and we discussed this in the previous week at some length. Those movements failed for precisely the reasons we're talking about. People believed quite sincerely and maybe even correctly that the consequences of a Corbyn or Sanders government would be exactly what we're describing now, mass capital flight uh, and, and national ruin. And that concern really wasn't answered by those movements and the sense really is, um, especially from within those movements, that there really isn't an answer. Now, there are, and we'll be talking about these eventually, all kinds of clever economic models and systems and ideas that people do propose, and MMT being the most obvious. Um, I have, and I think we share, concerns about those ideas. But in any case, they have never really managed to grasp grab the, the popular imagination and to assuage these these fears. Um, and they are not historically borne out, which I think is the is the overriding problem. Yeah. And then so the authors talk about they accept that they talk about if, if, if a planetary sovereign is to emerge, the directions that it's likely to come from is either the United States or China or some sort of amalgamation or tension between the two because remember these social formations aren't they're not the authors aren't talking about one that is going to 
be the only one in existence. They're talking about how these four social formations are going to shape the future and the struggle between them is going to shape the future. And China is the only nation that really is anywhere close to uh, the dominance that the United States um, has held for so long. And the real, like, the apogee of this idea of uh, a planetary sovereign would be solar radiation management, which is the idea that we can um, use technologies such as spraying aerosols into the sky, which then reflect um, sunlight back out into space. Now, these raise some interesting questions around sovereignty, because it's not just a case that it's almost impossible to know with absolute confidence what the long-term and even the short-term consequences of these technologies will be but there's also the question of who gets to make this call who makes a call that will not just affect the fate of those alive today not just those alive today within the country that makes that call but across the entire globe but also for all those who are not yet born for for, because we have no idea what the temporal consequences are as well and this is one of the uh, scarier aspects of uh, Leviathan, which you start with a Green New Deal, which sounds like very mild reforms where you're just enacting policies such as investing into inf- green infrastructure. But the same logics can take us to using technologies such as solar radiation management. I think the authors do a really good job of explaining how these systems of domination operate and and those implications and teasing out the the more sinister aspects of policies that, as you say, appear on the surface as progressive and nice in a way that I think is a really good challenge to the Green New Deal uh, in some of the same directions that we discussed last week, that, the, that these policies in their points of ambiguity can hide a, a lot of potential for especially the powerful nations in the world gaining a advantage over ones that have already suffered more greatly and contributed quite considerably less to the problems that we face. The ultimate and disaster capitalism. <laughs> yes, yeah. And forgetting that Keynesianism is a form of capitalism is, I think, written into that era. Um, that it ultimately still depends upon private actors acting to secure profits. That's that's at the heart of it, irrespective of its viability. Um, And the controlling of those interests really isn't something that we've seen from the progressive side of the Green New Deal. There, There are some limits placed on, especially within domestic spheres, um, in, in these ideas of, of a Green New Deal, but they're very rarely fleshed out. And it makes sense that they're not, because the more you flesh out those ideas, the more impediment you have to constructing a global sovereign necessary for the realization of these plans. So it, it is it is a it is a problem. And I think our next uh formulation, Behemoth, really captures these more sinister undertones because when you imagine the same technology being used around 
that formulation, which at its most extreme would probably be a form of eco-fascism, then you can imagine these issues of, of sovereignty being override by the more powerful nations in a kind of might is right style. And I really like um, the, the the labels for these terms because Levi- Leviathan is a very relevant descriptor for the Greek for green Keynesianism um, because it's a formation that's incapable of imagining spheres of political activity outside of the state, um, and that's a criticism that could justifiably level be leveled at the British left. But yeah, we should we should move on to Behemoth. So Behemoth is really. I would say the most interesting of these formulations in in many ways because since we since the book was written and it was written just after the 2016 presidential election of Trump this formation has become more dominant across the world we've seen it in various different countries throughout Europe throughout uh Asia throughout uh, the Americas in in various guises um and obviously as a formation, it's very geographically specific. What as, is interesting, though, right. is even in the time since we first started preparing this podcast, there's been such rapid movement. Um, for example, there's obviously been Trump re- really stoking the far right, and then we've had um, the election of Biden. And whilst that that's no, that's certainly no guarantee that uh, Behemoth is being um, that Leviathan is again the more likely social formation to dominate. It shows that there's nothing concrete here. Things are moving very rapidly. And that's very in line with the overall thesis of the book. And I think the the authors have done a really good job of, of capturing those tensions. And it is very rare to find books that really look at politics at this level of contestation and interaction um, in, in ways that, that each individual form- formulation is constantly permeated and altered by every other. And that's definitely been the case with Behemoth and Leviathan, who I would argue are uh, quite obviously the main ones in in play, because they both accept the prevailing economic model of our times. With Behemoth, I think it's very understandable that the authors downplayed it at the point that they did. And have subsequently in interviews increased its chances and given it credit. But you're absolutely right. There's been, as well as a march of the far right, uh, there have been specific instances of retreat of it where it's failed to hold on to power, where because often the nature of the people that it throws into positions of authority and their own inherent mediocrity, it's failed to really shift things as sufficient sufficiently that it can sustain that power and just to clarify for listeners behemoth the underlying tendency is one of reactionary populism and revolutionary anti-state democracy so very much a good descriptor of the rise of the far right in recent years which is not to say that it's limited to um to the kinds of forces around trump but certainly as we've seen seen it play in in actuality that's that's how it's taken its expression yeah and it's i would argue still dominant i think biden biden's victory whilst a blow 
doesn't really prepare any any um, any social forces against this. Doesn't really propose any alternative to it in a meaningful way. There are far too many continuities, as I mentioned before, and even in lieu of those continuities, there's no agenda to deal with the crisis of legitimacy that Behemoth originally exploited quite effectively. But there is an the, interesting um, interplay there, because as we showed in the last podcast, um, and Pettifor talks about a very national uh, Green New Deal, but the authors here talk about how a Green New Deal has to be global in perspective to actually be enacted, um, whereas Behemoth is centred around this nationalist rhetoric. Uh, squaring those two is interesting when when you have the i mean marginally more progressive side advocating policies on a national basis it's somewhat playing into the rhetoric that behemoth thrives off and they and the authors are fantastic at actually showing how behemoth plays into leviathan and leviathan plays into the behemoth by both exacerbating certain problems either nationally or internationally um, or by setting up certain logics that then feed into the other formulation uh, directly, which I think is one of the reasons why the trajectory of these formations is so difficult to anticipate, even if within themselves they're actually quite scripted in terms of how they, they play out. So it's often relatively easy to anticipate the responses of all of the different factions as they as they represent these different abstract possibilities to particular scenarios to particular events but how those events and scenarios play out in terms of the contestation between these forces is much more difficult to anticipate uh, with with any reliability and we i think we've seen that the that the forces around trump are, unpredict- are as unpredictable in defeat as they are in 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 victory in in terms of that defeat and victory those forces themselves definitely have all kinds of formula that they follow and you can kind of easily see those play out ahead but you, you can't see what the actual results are going to be um which is which is a kind of bewildering situation so- it's difficult to see this see a a distinct cleavage between Leviathan and Behemoth as, as social formations when they're enacted in reality, because much of the movement of the far right across the globe at the moment has been very effective at capturing the state whilst using anti-state rhetoric. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the, the weirdness of the you know in, in more popular culture discourse, the the so-called libertarian to fascist pipeline. Uh, is is exemplary of that. The the strangeness of what are effectively popular cults of power worship to movements of of far right authoritarianism, where you know a tremendous number of people are locked up along borders, where systems of domination take over the uh, the the various geopolitical main state actors. It's it's a it's a it's a really strange interplay, and you get this along the far right quite frequently. The uh, claims to be for freedom of speech, the claim the claims to freedom quite often, as we've seen around responses to the COVID nineteen disaster, 
often being rooted in, in fact, a, a deep fondness for authority and for the administration of that authority through the state. Um, the fact that libertarians are engaged in a kind of cop fetish, uh, <laughs> to put it mildly, uh, is 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 really weird, especially if you've seen this this uh, movement emerge out of what it was in the 1990s, where you know you would you would have people sort of celebrating the death of cops, going to being people who have you know blue lines, uh, a, a sort of fascistic cop symbol uh, on their social media profiles. It's it's a strange. It's a strange shift, and it does mean that there's an intermingling. But I think that intermingling ultimately serves Behemoth more than it serves Leviathan. Behemoth can appeal, I think, to the way in which the nation-state has captured the popular imagination as the as the main vehicle for all political change. We've talked about this as being a factor on the left, but of course, amongst the quote-unquote anti-globalists of the right, it's just as true. They might claim to be against the federal government in the United States, but ultimately they can't envisage changing society via any other mechanism than capturing the federal government. And I don't see that going away, and I think it remains as true in places like China as it is in the US as well, where control over state power is still seen as the primary mechanism by which society can shift. And it overwhelmingly disadvantages the final formulation, which we haven't quite got to yet. But that's that's the one that really proposes, and I would say the only one that really proposes, a mechanism that's outside of that territory. Of course, that blurring you mentioned works both ways, because a lot of the, the strategies used by the far right or encouraged aren't novel they a lot of them have been um been used uh, for several years um by more liberal governments they've just, so th- this rise of the far right has been uh, the the tendency has been latent all along for example th- uh, there's a long tradition in global north countries of using detention centers and detainment camps for refugees with yarlswood in the uk the island of Nauru that's just off Australia as well and so the far right we're always at pains to mention that they didn't they didn't appear in a vacuum yes the the seed of the far right you, you can argue that the seed of both behemoth and climate leviathan would would naturally have to exist to some extent within neoliberalism itself for it to flourish you can argue, and as I would I, I would say that the Keynesians do argue that they that they see um, their model as somehow transcending neoliberalism. That I think is definitely not the case with the far right, even even in in terms of their self conception. And if you go back to, for example, Pinochet's coup in Chile, you can see that neoliberalism had this core of authoritarianism of fascism within it in its original conception in in how it instantiated itself in the beginning in the mid 1970s and really at various flashpoints including in the Reagan and Thatcher administrations so you could argue that behemoth is a embryonic potentiality within neoliberalism in a way that 
climate Leviathan fundamentally does challenge certain precepts of the neoliberal order and actually asks it to become something else and actually something that it, it itself replaced, really, to go back to the model of the post-war consensus in many ways, um, to some extent, although albeit not um, with, a, with a greater degree of severity and with more, um, with, with, a, with a, a sense of political sovereignty on a, on a scale that would have been unimaginable at that point. And this ties into the left's obsession with neoliberalism that many on the left refuse to see the qualitative shift that has happened uh, where we are moving into more fascistic territory. This may be a consequence of decades of neoliberalism, um, but that does not mean there is not a specific and tangible difference in the territory we're moving into now. And this is a territory that's ripe for eco-fascism, where maybe... Uh, a decade ago, you would have had uh, those on, on on the further edges of the right uh, denying climate change entirely. But that, that that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. It's um, an acknowledgement that it's happening, and it's using that as a justification for drawing up borders against those who are suffering from climate breakdown most, who it's, of course, worth emphasising, have contributed it to the least. And we're seeing this now, particularly... Um, in the Mediterranean, and of course, the border rhetoric is very mainstream now in the United States. And increasingly in the UK as well, it's been quite astonishing to see people defending the British border, going down to port towns and such, in in a way that was that is clearly directly inspired by what happens along the borders of the US. And that taking over the zeitgeist in, in multiple places. And of course, you mentioned eco-fascism becoming a lot more tangible as a possibility. And you can see that in, in certain places in the continent where red and brown formations, both social, supposedly socialist ecological parties and outright fascist parties have formed coalitions. This is, this is, deeply concerning and it does show you that this has an intuitive appeal to a lot of people that if the problem is the mass movement of people because of eco breakdown then erecting borders makes sense and and the way that that even particular people not the entire movement but even people within organizations like XR have played into the Malthusian logic of overpopulation, have played into the idea that people coming to more developed countries is inherently a problem because that will increase their carbon footprint. It's worth so, saying just on the point of playing into the Malthusian rhetoric, that's it's I mean it's become so mainstream that you have the likes of David Attenborough and Jane Goodall uh, who are flag bearers of the climate movement state restating ideas that have been bunked a long time ago debunked a long time ago even and there has been some pushback but it, it has to negotiate that that popular sentiment that this is a that this is a thing and and you know it seems silly but the the idea that even villains who are depicted as sympathetic in in mainstream movies are frequently given this as a motive Thanos being the obvious example um this is a you know it's it's ludicrous but it's at the same time it plays in the popular imagination people 
really do believe that this is a problem. Uh, there was a show on British television called Utopia where where that was the ultimate justification for the antagonists in the end. And indeed, one of the heroes, the, the most likable of the heroes, ends up converting for that reason. It's, here it's we're so, talking about so, the good Utopia, not the terrible remake. Yes, yes. Um, but it's it's a it's a really it's 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 a really powerful piece of of rhetoric, um, and and it plays into I think a broader sort of contingent of petty bourgeois culture that sort of looks at a large crowd of people and says, oh, you know, there's there's so many of them. We need we need you know, that goes down to the park and says, oh, human beings ruin this, whilst never obviously factoring themselves into that alleged ruination of the park. This is a this is a, a very common attitude, I think, in in um, hyper in, in highly well developed countries where they've got where people have a, a, a sense of privilege and detachment from from broader social concerns, um, and when that combines with social resentments during periods of crisis, it creates a, a conflagration of of attitudes that can become a electoral coalition quite easily, including amongst people who are often thought as very unlikely to back far-right parties. This flattening of humanity, it's problematic. And you see this again with the idea of adaptation. You have those, and we we see this on the left as well. We see people, it's not just a liberal thing where you have people talking about how we, we, we just need to adapt to uh, the new climate, whether that's uh, reducing our emissions, um, but who is the we in this? Like, who who is who should be adapting? Should it be those in the global south who have emitted the least but are bearing the brunt? And so, this mechanism by which to actually enact this adaptation doesn't exist um, unless you are going to reinforce current global inequalities. If you have liberal market-based capitalism, the solutions can't rectify these global injustices because there is no mechanism by which to do so because markets are supposed to be apolitical. And so behemoth just, it, it, it doesn't account for these things. It, it, it just, it has no interest in rectifying these global injustices. And in that way, there's something almost more authentic about it. And that certainly taps into the appeal of the far right. It's no, there's not, nothing behind that stylistic authenticity but it's still there because the rhetoric is 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 matched by um there's no pretense to care absolutely i i think that that's one of the reasons why uh going into the next formulation albeit briefly because i have less to say about it but but it's one of the reasons why if the majority of the left has taken the position of climate leviathan. The second likeliest position that the left is likely to take is climate Mao, because it too has that aura of legitimacy. Climate Mao proposes a model of anti-capitalist pro-sovereignty. It's essentially leviathan but in an anti-capitalist formulation. And although it really is hard to perceive what social forces would bring it about, the author's name 
China as the only possibility, and even they state that it's unlikely. But again, these are formulations that don't really have to be actualized to influence each other in actuality. So they don't have to win out in some ideal form to have a tremendous impact. And climate now, there's a quote from the book actually that I think is worth reading. If capitalist climate leviathan stands ready to embrace carbon governance in an evolving Euro-American liberal hegemony, climate now expresses the necessity of a just terror in the interests of the future of the collective, which is to say that it represents the necessity of a planetary sovereign, but wields this power against capital. The state of exception determines who may or may not emit carbon at the expense of unjust wastefulness, unnecessary emissions, and conspicuous consumption. And in a way, you can see that this really plays to an outrage to that flattening of humanity, and that it backs that up with something far more tangible than the final formulation, which we'll get to. And the next, we're going to be talking about um, Andreas Malm's uh, works on climate change in the next podcast. And uh, this uh, Climate Mal invokes some of those ideas of this war communism. Um, and as you say, it, it doesn't seem particularly likely at this point because of the lack of a mechanism by which to enact it. And also... Uh, a lack of um, social forces on the ground. But it is still an interesting exercise looking at Climate Mao, theoretical exercise, uh, comparing Climate Mao to Climate Leviathan. Uh, arguably, uh, China, as we discussed earlier, are far closer to um, enacting something closer to Leviathan than to Mao. But it provides an interesting comparison of what might have been like a hauntological exercise as Mark Fisher might have put it, of a different China that continued along a more uh, inverted commas socialist path if it hadn't embraced free market capitalism as it currently is. It feels very much like a historical what if. And I like the, the way of framing it as hortological because in that sense, you can see how it can tangibly have an influence over people's imaginations and therefore their political actions and allegiances. And I would argue that's the, the main reason why Climate Mao remains relevant to, to politics currently. It also has a tremendous appeal across the academic left. When you look at, for example, a uh, thinker like Slavoj Žižek and how he imagines that the various different political actors will come together out of a state of emergency and enact semi-communistic forces so that we sort of gradually transition away from capitalism as a response to emergency. That seems to almost play into a kind of achieving climate mal via a path of climate leviathan. And although I think that's incredibly improbable and really ignores the way that capitalism shapes people's interests in, in all kinds of complex senses, it it does have an appeal. It has a narrative appeal in the same way that overpopulation and the resolving of that has a sort of narrative appeal to people. You can imagine a sort of correlation of governments coming together and saying, well, capitalism just doesn't work. We can't have capitalism and resolve this potentially species-risking problem so we just have to do away with it it's it's simplistic it, it, it strikes me as completely right. ignoring 
the balance of forces globally as well. It's almost laughable to think about who's going this this coordination of efforts that's just going to say, yeah, we're done with capitalism. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, yeah, I, I, it's it's a story. It's a fable more than it is, I think, uh, an argument. And that's usually the way I think it's presented as, and including um, Malm is interesting because he presents, I would argue, not really that version, which I've seen in certain forms in, in pieces by Zizek, but rather he presents more this... Um, flip-flopping between wanting climate now and advocating climate leviathan, I would argue. If you look at the ending of some of his books, it, it, it seems much more climate leviathan. And to be fair, that does capture the contradiction quite nicely, in a sense. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's where, where climate Mao is. I think climate Mao shapes certain people's commitment to particular policies within the frame of climate leviathan. It, it's more likely that a certain contingent of the left in advocating for climate leviathan will be shaped by certain values that come out of climate now, particularly around international justice and attitudes towards the global south. But still, ultimately, I would argue in ways that downplay the agency of the global south and depend fundamentally on, on domination. As, as the mechanism by which they're achieved. It's certainly a useful rhetorical device for suppressing X, which we should probably describe before we explore what that actually means. Absolutely. X is, I would argue, as somebody who studied utopia, and, and, and therefore it kind of inherently appeals to me, it's the least tangible of these formations in, in an intentional sense in that it represents both an anti-sovereign, anti-capitalist solution. So it doesn't really emerge out of existing institutions and economics in the way that every other formulation does, at least in part, even though many of them, all of them except for Leviathan, break away from certain preset ideas. This breaks away from everything. And it really depends upon grassroots, bottom-up movements. The one the authors like to name is uh, Zapatismo to instantiate itself, but that in its instantiation is the least foreseeable because it sets up a completely new logic. It's, it's very hard. It's an entirely conjunctural formation, both historically and geographically. Mm. And... A lot of this really rests atop of their explorations of the Italian theorist Antonio Gramsci and his understanding of history, which I'll pass over to you because I think you have a much better grasp of of the Gramscian theory. Yeah, so the authors um, talk about the innovation introduced by the philosophy of praxis into the science of politics and history, which is the demonstration that there is no abstract human nature, like a fixed human nature, um, but that human nature is a totality of historically determined social relations. What is human nature is dictated or certainly um, greatly informed by the historical forces that shaped us. Um, 
And this has been, I think Kelsey Sayer described it as uh, absolute historicism. Actually, I think Gramsci himself might have uh, called it absolute historicism. And it's been uh, a controversial concept because popularly it's been seen as a rejection of dialectical materialism. But it's worth breaking down what Gramsci actually means here. Um, because the authors of Climate Leviathan actually talk about this, and it's um, a really interesting way of phrasing it. So uh, Mann and Wayne might argue that Gramsci pa- places an emphasis on historicity, so the historical origin and context of human nature, rather than the material element within historical materialism. And so the reason this is relevant is because materialism alone cannot account for nature. So rather than a constituent part of the dialectic, so part of a dynamic relation with man nature becomes this fixed eternal and external object so nature is sort of out there and you've seen this you can see this in uh previous attempts by socialists who've uh, managed to capture the state where nature is just a resource that can be plundered essentially and this ties into the uh the idea of progress so progress has a fixed goal and the difference, um, the, the counter to that is the idea of becoming, because becoming does not have a fixed goal. And climate X has to be a process of becoming rather than a process of progress, because there is no fixed goal, because as we said, it's both historically and geographically contingent. As the authors put it, the goal of left is to create a theoretical framework, not a mechanistic model of how to proceed. And this is actually philosophically extremely pleasing, but in practical terms, immensely frustrating because ultimately we're trying to hear, and the authors are are trying to describe a formation that has very little flesh on the bones of it. Um, And by its nature, this is the only way it can be. Yes. And I think that's the, one of the inherent problems that, that Marxian for has, has always grasped with in some form or another that the this idea that you can't have blueprints, which I think is often very misinterpreted as a sort of strand, stringent anti-utopianism throughout the whole of, of Marxian thought. But the idea that you can't exactly predict the the either the general trajectory of the future, but particularly the construction of a new set of social relations, a new society because it would have to transcend current expectations, current ideas, and even current consciousness in in all kinds of ways. And especially if you're imagining a shift not to a new class society or a new model of sovereignty, but away from class society, away from relations of domination whatsoever. To be fair to the office, they do go into some length looking at the balance of forces, the, the, the people who on the ground who are likeliest to pursue this course, and specifically name check indigenous struggles and Marxist forces, which they argue have proven in both very robust throughout history in terms of maintaining traditions of struggle, um, and they argue complement each other in all kinds of ways. And going back to the point about Mao, you can see the logic of Mao as playing inherently against this, that the that by emphasizing a model of sovereignty or state power, that it 
downplays the necessity to embolden these forces to bolster them and to and to rely on them um, as a as a risk not worth taking because however unlikely Mao is it can still point to tangible things either in the past or present uh, that that it can show as models for how it's functioning and in a way that climate X cannot do. Um, but that is, that is in no sense a weakness of climate X, however frustrating. It's the it's the it's that side of climate X, it's open possibilities that we'd really need to come to the fore in terms of a rhetorical strategy for drawing people into such a project. And it's worth noting that climate X is a social formation that exists and has existed for a long time. There are movements on the ground particularly with indigenous indigenous struggles that have been fighting for a long time and as we've emphasized several times in this podcast it's the struggle between these formations so i don't think at any point did the author suggest that climate x is going to be the dominant formation but it is a formation that is happening on the ground and has been for a long time and I would argue that Naomi Klein, of all of the authors we've discussed other than uh, the authors of this book, uh, has given the most credit to those kinds of forces. Although, and I was critical of her in the previous episode for redirecting all of that essentially and entirely towards climate leviathan, she does emphasise the role these forces play, the necessity of these forces in order to in that interactive spirit, make climate leviathan something that is not horrifying and unjust. And I think she does that to a greater extent than most advocates of the Green New Deal uh, and and definitely than most advocates of something like climate Mao. And if Mao is more on the side of climate Mao, although I wouldn't say he ignores those things and he places autonomous struggles very at the heart of his book and we'll probably discuss this at more length in the next episode i would argue that certainly where he starts talking about war communism indigenous struggles and other such formations start to play a significantly undervalued role in in the in the emergence of historical forces and these and these different balances between formations I think that's that's exactly right. It's subordinating these uh, formations to a state that is envisioned to be the only actor capable of handling the situation, so to speak. I think we've 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 covered the four formations and the authors. So in the book, if they get close to a prediction, it's that of planetary sovereignty. They outline three reasons. Uh, one is a tendency towards greater planetary endangering weapons. And the only way, so this is a very Hobbesian argument, so the only way to prevent the use of a weapon that might endanger the entire planet would be a single single sovereign able to oversee its use. Another logic is that of uh, the Marxist tendency Thank of capitalist crises. Um, and a planetary Twitter sovereign, again, is capable of coordinating and redirecting global supply chains in a way to manage these crises, though we would argue that's not possible within the capitalist system, but we can go into that some other time. Uh, and also only a sovereign could use solar radiation management, which would be a potential way of um, diverting the crisis, the climate crisis, whilst continuing global patterns of production. 
do you have any thoughts going forward? Because the authors, at the time of the book, they did lean towards Climate Leviathan, but in in fairness to them, they several years later they did write an article for Dissident Magazine in which they acknowledged that they'd somewhat underplayed Behemoth, and I think quite a lot of us underplayed uh, the how rapidly and forcefully the far right would be on the rise. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the the problem with their their clinching arguments, and I, I would I would extend all of that charity to them as well, in terms of where they were placed historically, and certainly there's not a lot of prescience on the left, uh, so there's not a lot of, of room for grandstanding in terms of predictions. But I would argue that where those arguments are not really the clinches that they seem to imagine. Uh, is that, it, that they all seem to be variously appeals to consequences, that the consequences of not having a, a climate sovereign um, are, are terrible, and therefore they're, uh, it's unlikely. And I don't follow that reasoning. I think that bad things can happen, including incredibly bad things. Whilst I do try to remain an optimist, and I think that for pragmatic reasons, it's sensible to try to be as optimistic as you possibly can be. The the idea that that climate that the climate leviathan is inevitable because climate behemoth is so appalling in terms of how it would manage weapons of mass destruction. It, it, there's just no sensible connector between the premise and the conclusion. Um, there's no reason why. The, why a, a Donald Trump wouldn't launch nuclear weapons in the right circumstances. There's no inherent reason why an eco-fascist state wouldn't engage in geoengineering to the disadvantage of its even its immediate neighbours, let alone the global south. And I think it's naive to assume that 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 that, that anything else is the case. This is a habit that we do tend to fall into, where the idea that the consequences are so bad and the stakes are so high that therefore action will be taken um it's it, it's it's almost it's a problem of coordination in a way and I, 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 that's what they're arguing against they're arguing that the only way to coordinate against these logics is planetary sovereignty but how to actually coordinate that planetary sovereignty into being in itself um is 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 a big problem of course so next time we're going to uh, look at Andreas Malm's fossil. Primarily, we're going to look at fossil capital, but we're also going to look at his book on um, Corona crisis and communism, or something like that. It's a long old title. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Good Sense. You can find us on Twitter at Pod Good Sense. <laughs>